turn our Bibles to the third chapter of Exodus for a morning lesson. It's the call of Moses by God. Very familiar chapter, and we want to think about it in the uh, sense of God calling someone for a task and giving, showing himself and giving them the power to do what he asked. Exodus chapter 3, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey." Under the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I? that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with thee. God said, and God said, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers, fathers hath sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. 
and they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when you go, ye shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. We invite you then to open your Bibles to Ephesians, third chapter. Our brother has selected. We'll read together. Ephesians 3. For this cause I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which is other ages which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the word hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length, and the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus, 
throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There's a certain amount of mental gymnastics that goes on in my brain before I preach a rerun, as we say sometimes. And I see a lot of faces that were there the last time I preached this message, and I don't remember who was there and who wasn't, and so I'm going to assume that you don't remember the message either. And so let's pretend like it's fresh for all of us. I was very inspired by Brother Tim's opening about power, because that's really what we want to talk about this morning again is being empowered and how that works in the life of a believer. And and we say that like we're going to present some all-encompassing message that's just going to spell all this out. And when you're dealing and you're talking and you're trying to understand the power of God, it's like dipping your finger in a pool of water that just goes on and on and on and on and will never reach the bottom. That's the power of God. I want to talk about being empowered and, and just from the opening, I'm, I'm so inspired. I, I really feel like my heart's about to pop, actually, because I'm so excited about what our brother shared and how that, that fits the message and how that affirms uh, what I have on my heart and mind, and I, and I hope and I pray, and I would like you to pray too, that we could present that in, in, a, uh, in a manner that's understandable. Um, like I said, it's such a big subject, it's, it's really difficult to try to present it, um, try to speak about it. We read there in Exodus chapter 3 about this man, Moses, who was on the backside of the desert, and he had... He had killed an Egyptian and he'd been raised in Pharaoh's household. And we know the story of Moses and he had fled. He had caught a little criticism from his fellow Israelites there in Egypt. And he had fled into the desert and married this this daughter of Jethro. And he was out there tending flocks on the backside of the desert. God had a purpose for him. God had a job for him to do. God has a job for you to do, every man, woman, and child. God has a purpose and a plan and a job for you. And we quickly, when we talk about some of this, we quickly get into our responsibility and God's sovereignty and how that works. And I don't even pretend to understand how those two segue together. I think it was C.S. Lewis maybe that said God's sovereignty and man's responsibility run parallel lines through life that meet somewhere in eternity. And I suppose that's about right. I wonder if, if when the scripture speaks about the ages to come, there'll be God's, God's wisdom being, uh, expressed, His manifold wisdom. I wonder if, if part of the heavenly experience or however you picture that is us just being amazed at what God has done. And men, women, and, and all the world over in ages past and ages to come, the work and the power of God in every man, woman on the face of the earth and that are in His kingdom, what He has done with them, what He's done with you, and what He wants to give us, bless us with, and, and that hope of glory that, that keeps us just powering through each day. But there's Moses tending flocks on the backside of the desert. And he sees a sight that's a little strange. He sees this burning bush. And we read that account and God speaks to him. And you can read in the the fourth chapter some excuses he come up with. 
Well, I'm not an eloquent man. What what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How will they listen to me? And and that's probably the first point we want to hold before you about God's empowering us is is it's not really about who you are. It's about who God is. And it holds true with our brothers opening and talking about the adversary and the spirit of the adversary and and the supernatural and all that. What drives a lot of that is is fear. Men fear. And they hear noises and they see things, ghosts, let's say, in places that they may or may not exist. And I am one that says the supernatural world is all around it and praise be to God, I can't see it much. Because I think I'd probably freak out too. But what we do have is a promise that that our brother talked about, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I thought about some uh, some admonition from the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy, when he said, Timothy, I want to stir up. I want you to remember then you stir up this gift of God that's in you. I want you to stir it up. I want you to rekindle and to to make a roaring flame out of this gift of God that's in you because God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I don't know how that promise of Scripture resonates with you. God has not given the believer the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And I think sometimes, and we may get into this later in the message, when, when we have fear in our hearts, and a lot of times I've concluded it's the fear of the unknown, we are falling short of the promise of God and we are believing a lie. And we have given a small amount of our heart or our sound mind over to the adversary and he is the spirit of fear. But God's empowerment is not so much about who we are. It's about who he is. And we'll try to amplify that as we go along. And that's what Moses said unto God. Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the important part of those verses is, is God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's how you're going to do it, Moses. And you're not going to do it apart from that. You probably won't even make it another day in the desert unless I'm with you. I will go with you. I have a job for you. I want you to do something for me. I've heard the cry of my people. I'm going to empower you to go into the very heart of enemy territory and bring them out. But it's not you that's bringing them out. It's my strong hand that's bringing them out. But I want you to lead them, Moses. And you'll lead them because I will go with you. And the same promise applies to us. And Moses says, he comes up with the excuses. God tells him, you want to see a little bit of power, Moses? Take that staff that's in your hand and throw it down. And he throws it down and it turns into a snake. God says, that'll be a sign that you can use. He says, put your hand under your coat, Moses. And Moses does. And he pulls it back out. And it's white as snow. It's leprous. And God says, that's my power, Moses. You'll be able to use that as a sign too. And on and on. And Moses just keeps coming up with stuff. And in that next chapter, it actually says that God became angry with Moses. 
Because no matter what God showed him, a staff through a snake or a leprous hand or whatever, he would come up with something else, some reason why he couldn't do the job that God was calling him to do. Well, I'm not an eloquent man. And I, I struggle a little bit with that. I mean, Moses had spent decades probably in, in Pharaoh's court. I'm assuming he had probably the highest education that you could have had at the time. And I'm sure rhetoric and eloquence was part of that. Oratory, something along those lines. And even if he didn't, God, I'm sure, would have given him that too. But God in His goodness and His abundant grace said, okay, Moses, I have a job for you. You're trying to get out of it. I'll let Aaron speak for you, but I am still going to go with you and you're still going to lead my people out. So it's not so much about who we are and what we think our strengths or weaknesses are and whether we may or may not be, be properly equipped for a job, the job that God has us to do. It's about who He is. And whether he's with us or not. And so Moses says, well, who should I say that sent me? Who am I going to tell my, my fellow Israelites sent me? And God just says, you tell them that I am sent you. I am sent you. And there's depths to that I don't understand. But basically, um, on, on like a apologetic level, it makes sense to me that, that he is the, the first cause or the cause of causes. So it's just like, no matter what, the, everything else is a result of that. So just God is. He quite simply is. He's preexistent. He's eternal. There's nothing that's on the other side of God. He is the first cause. I am. It just means He is and everything else is a result. Everything we see and experience is a result of, of God being the preeminent first cause. And some of that, if you're not into apologetics, makes about zero sense. But what about this? We go down the, the, the story of God's working with people on, on planet Earth a couple thousand years, and we have a man in Galilee that, that answers to me what is a question that we have there in Exodus, the third chapter of I am. And my mind says, I am what? What are you? How, that don't even make sense. It's just, Moses, go tell your people I am sent you. In my mind, if I was Moses, would have been, I am what? What, what do I tell you, tell them that you are? God just says, I quite simply am. And I want more than that. And so you go down, down, you know, several thousand years of history and we have a man in Galilee that says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And we have here God, um, manifesting himself of what He is, who He is, and the power that He is capable of. I am the bread of life. And that was right after He had fed 5,000 people with just a boy's lunch. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He says that. I am the light of the world. That was right before He healed a blind man. Light was something that man had never seen. And the first thing that man seen was the face of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus goes on explaining, manifesting, I think is the word I want, who God is. 
I might just preface that thought with this idea or this this statement of Jesus where where Philip says to him, um, can you just plainly show us the Father? His disciples were there and he just, Jesus, you're a great man, you're a great master, you're a great rabbi, can you just show us the Father? And, and Jesus says, Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you're asking me to show you the Father? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Young person, I, I want you to get that. When you are thinking about God and who He is and, and His power, and we need to be in reverential awe of that and a reverential fear and awe of Him, don't forget this. When you read through through the Old Testament and you see a God there and... and and a critic of Christianity will use this, this Old Testament and God manifesting himself there. They will bring that up like God is, seems to be this, this sadistic, bloodthirsty tyrant in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of that I don't understand when he's telling Israel or Saul or whoever to go utterly destroy, say, the Amalekites or destroy this people or destroy that people. There's a lot of the working of God I don't understand. But I do understand this, that when, when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I want you to focus on the life of Christ as manifested in the Gospels, what He did, what He said, how He presented that to people. That is God. That is how God works. And, and ultimately, the Scripture says God is love, and He manifests that on a cross. He showed us what love actually looks like. And so, in all of that, here's Jesus, this man of Galilee, and He's, he's explaining to this Jewish people that God of the Old Testament is also man. It is Him. I am. I am the gate. I am the door. Speaking of entry into this kingdom of God, entry into the fold, entry into the, the protection and empowering of God. He says, I am the good shepherd. There's a lot of people in here that are very familiar with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And us children, when we were children, a lot of us memorized that. I think every man, woman, and child that, that was in this audience that Jesus was speaking to knew the 23rd Psalm. And when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he, they full well knew He was claiming to be God. I am the good shepherd. I will protect you. I will care for you. Right before He raised Lazarus from the dead, when he was, I think He was dialoguing with Mary or Martha, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. These are bold statements. You can't say Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He did not give us that option by making these statements. He was either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or He's Lord. Those are your options when you're dealing with Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Speaking of access to the Father, no one comes to the Father but by Him. He said it. I am the true vine. And he speaks of just our sustenance, our sustaining, where power, where true overcoming power comes from. I am the true vine. 
And then we, we kind of segue or we, we, we come through and this is kind of what brother Tim talked about in John 14, 15 through 24. Jesus says these words, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That building that Brother Tim talked about may or may not have been full of ghosts. There might have been spirits in there. And that person he was talking to probably believed that. And he believed that because he did not know this spirit of truth. That spirit of truth did not live in him, did not dwell in him. And that's why he would say things like he said. Jesus says further in that chapter, he says, if you'll love me, you will keep my words. You will keep my words. There's a lot of promises in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th chapters of John. I'd encourage you to study those and study them again. And the more you read them, the more that comes out of there. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my words. And that's part of being empowered by this Holy Spirit of God is keeping his words. That keep means to guard, to protect, to put them in a safe. That safe should be our heart. And when we're, we're prone to this fear or this worry or this anxiety or this unbelief or this questioning of whether God cares, whether he loves us, where's he at? Why are these circumstances are in my life? Why am I dealing with this? What is going on? I would encourage you to read the promises of Scripture and keep them, guard them in your heart. Jesus says, you'll do this if you love me. You'll keep my words. You will guard them. You will believe them. You will, this spirit of truth will work in you to manifest those truths in the face of lies that we're tempted to believe. And we may get into more of that later. So it's not about so much who we are, it's about who God is. Paul has that same same mentality here a little bit, and this is a healthier way of looking at it. Here in Exodus, the third chapter, in the eighth verse, this is part of, of this is part of a heart posture, I'll say, that we should have or need to have for God's empowering to work in us more effectual effectually effectively and that is this paul says verse 7 whereof i was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of god given unto me by the effectual working of his power i think brother tim read that verse maybe god has given us a gift and then here's the heart posture of paul he recognizes this gift of grace that god gave him unto me who am less than the least of all saints, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Brother and sister, sometimes you and I flirt with this idea that there is something we've done or said that, that God cannot work in us because we've for lack of better words, we've messed up so bad. There's no way God can work with us. 
There's no way He loves us. There's no way He wants us. We, he does, I know what the Scripture says, but I just don't feel it. I don't believe it. If, if only it was made manifest to what I'd done or said, then, then God would just say, uh-uh, sorry, you're, you're, you're lost. That's not how it works. Think of Paul. Think of this zealot, this religious zealot, casting men and women into prison and they died. I don't know that they died by his hand, Directly, but they certainly died indirectly from Paul's hand. That thought could, I'm sure it did, and it, he kept that with him his entire ministry. You don't lose something like that. And that's why Paul could write the words that God, I'm the least of all saints. And later, uh, or somewhere else he says something about being the least of all saints or something along those lines because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did things that were terrible. Paul hailed men and women into prison, and I can't imagine what that looked like. I can't imagine the tears, the crying children, the blood, whatever that looked like. And I can't imagine the heart of Paul that stood there. Well, he did. He stood there and watched Stephen get stoned. He held the coats. He's like, you guys take care of it. Beat that man to death. He deserves it. I'll hold your coats. Have at it. That was Paul. That was Paul. Let not anyone in here ever, ever flirt with the idea that you and I, because of our past, are outside of the gift of grace of God. Don't ever, ever go there. You can read in Hebrews about a faithful high priest that can save them to the uttermost. That's you and I. That's part of God empowering us is recognizing who He is. And our heart posture should be we're just the least of all saints. But God is a great, merciful, gracious, good God and He loves us. And we can overcome through His power. God's empowerment is not about who we are. It's about who He is and it's about our belief. And so that's, that's kind of why we threw the little truth and lies thing in there. Number two, God's empowering of us is a gift for a purpose. God empowers us. It's not at that point just all about you and us receiving this gift of salvation, although that is huge. Primary, I think we could probably say. God equips, He saves men and women for a purpose. And here's where we get into this idea, not an idea, this reality that, that God is so good and it's, He's so good. And I, I wish I could come up with a different word than good because that just doesn't do it. Awesome would come real close. God is awesome and, and that sounds kind of hippie-ish probably, but that's a little better way of saying it, perhaps. And, and it's not like us as teenagers say awesome. That just means worthy of all. Like when we see God, we see His power, we see His working. Well, what's the hymn we sing sometimes? Um, our hearts are lost. Something when we see God's grand design or something, our hearts are lost in reverent awe. I might have it later in here. We might sing that. If one of you brethren want to find it at some point, it would probably be nice. 
God's empowering of us is for a gift, for a purpose. Here in the seventh verse of Ephesians 3, we read about that. We just read that, and that's the, the verse Tim said, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. I want to read a few verses for you in Romans 5. Romans 5.15, you can turn there. We're just going to go down through some verses. We're going to, we're going to talk about how this empowering is a gift for a purpose. Romans 5.15, but not as the offense, so also as the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that's Adam and his sin nature, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. There's a lot of, of big words. There's a lot of deep concepts in here. But basically, the, the summation, in my opinion, is, is that, that because of Adam and his fall, sin has reigned ever since. And the results of sin is death, physical, spiritual death. And we will hope to get into more of that. That's the other problem with this sermon is the clock is usually the enemy on something like this. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. It's a gift of grace, this empowering of God for a purpose. It's a gift. And it's... I'm getting ahead of myself. I need to get through these verses first. I got too many trains of thought going on. Verse 21 talks about this, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to picture God being supremely good and, and the best way I can think of it is the way Jesus described himself to the woman at the well at Sychar when he said, you know the story, draw, she came to draw water, he said, give me a drink, and she said, why are you asking this of me, a Samaritan, and on and on and on. And he said, if, if you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would ask of him and he would have given you to drink. And he talks about this well of water springing up and just just bursting forth and gushing forth. That's what the empowerment of God is for. This gift of grace to every believer is is this well of God springing up unto life everlasting for a purpose. And it, and it goes forth and there's no end. We the the farm we bought back in 04, had a well that was, I think, 21 foot to the bottom. I want to say it was like 17 foot to water and 21 foot to the bottom of the well. I mean, it was just, it wasn't deep at all. And some of those hot, dry summers about August, early September, you took a quick shower or you was going to get a lot of rusty water because the well would run dry. And by and by, we gained, accumulated a little extra money, and it's like it's time to drill a new well. And so we had Wiley's Well Service come out, and they backed this old derelict red truck up the driveway, and he started to drill out by the garden. And money was very tight at that time, and it's, you know, a lot of money per foot, 
and I was hoping if the old well was 21 feet, you know, maybe maybe 40 is good. I can afford that. Maybe we'll go 40 feet, plenty of water, and he starts to drill, and he drills, and he drills, and he drills, and I'm standing there pacing, and he drills, and he drills, and I said, "Where? how deep are you going? Well, we're at 70 feet. I want to keep going, and I'm doing this math in my head going, we are so toast. And he's drilling, and he's drilling, and he said, ah, oh, we're hitting limestone at 91 feet. I'm going to keep going. It's like, oh, boy. What are we going to sell? 121 feet, he stopped drilling. And he had hit limestone at 91. And he said, if I go just a few more feet, he said, you're going to have water pouring out the top of your well. He said, you're over a hundred gallons a minute. He said, if I keep going, you'll have water flowing year round. In fact, my two neighbors have water flowing year round because he drilled too deep. He said, I'll put 60 down on the, on the papers. He said, that'll keep the fire department from backing up your driveway and filling their trucks out of your well. But he says, you have the best well around. That's just a pathetic illustration of the empowering gift of God in the believer. A well springing up, gushing forth. That's the goodness of God. And we all just partake in that every day. And like Brother Tim said, we're, you know, we may be one heartbeat or one breath away from being gone. Are you getting a picture of the grace of God and this empowering gift of grace? Ephesians 2.8 for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 4, 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. God empowers us through these gifts of grace. And those, I think, spiritual gifts fall under there. Some of you, brethren, are really good at a certain thing. You're good at speaking a, a true word at the right time in the heart of a young man. And you may or may not know it. Some of you sisters can, can bake food like, I mean, it's casserole factory central. And you can bless people when they're, when they need food. It's a gift of grace. God gives us empowering gifts of grace for a purpose. And it's, it's not just for ourselves. It's not just so we can say, praise God, we're saved. That's part of it. That's primary, I think. But He empowers us and He gives us gifts of grace so you and I can minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So part of this, God's empowering us is for a purpose and it displays his unsearchable riches that you read about there in the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Unsearchable riches. That's how God works as he gives us these gifts of grace. Okay, I want to get to the, the main part of the message here and we're just going to camp out in the third chapter of Ephesians. And I want to go through this prayer here. As, as we try to speak into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit and help us to understand 
what God is wanting us to do, how God is trying to empower us to work for him in his kingdom. And in all our varied circumstances, in all our trials, and in all our sufferings, and all of that, God is there and He has a job for us to do. So Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul has a prayer here. And I want to go through this line by line as we try to, to amplify and bring to our minds and our hearts this thing of, of what God's empowerment really is. And yes, it is, it is by His Holy Spirit working in us. That's how it works. And we'll hope to cover some of that. And I just titled this a call to maturation, which is a 50 cent word for just saying be mature in this gift of grace that God's empowering us with. Being mature. I worked with a, a Ukrainian man. In fact, he works for Thane. And he was talking to Nathan Boone on the job site. And he says, I think Nate had asked him what the difference is between, you know, what, what's it like with people in Ukraine and, and what's it like people in America? You know, just give us some, some thoughts on that. And he said, in America, people are like plants in a greenhouse. He said, there's just it's just a pretty nice environment for growth. But it's not strong. I'm, I'm adding words to what he said, and I didn't understand half of what he said. He doesn't speak English very well. Thanks to Google Translate, you can kind of get the gist of it. But he said Americans are like plants in a greenhouse. There's just this environment for growth, but it's not strong growth. It's just growth. And if any of you have grown plants in a greenhouse, you know that you've got to take them outside at some point and be very careful, and we call it hardening them off because they're just soft, and you give them enough wind or temperature change, and those plants will just fall over and die. Found that out the hard way the first year we had a greenhouse. He said people in Ukraine are like crocuses under the snow or weeds in a crack in a parking lot. They're hardy. They're tough. They're survivors because they have to be because their environment is not very nice. Part of that, and I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at the American church or our environment. It is what it is and it's up to us to, to mature and do with it what God would want us to. But what I think I see and a lot of American Christians, and I'm not talking about just German Baptists, and I see it in myself, is a lack of maturity. A lack of maturity. And I wonder if it's not about that greenhouse. I don't know. I'm just throwing these thoughts out there for, for you to think about. But I, I want to drill. I'm just trying to preface this Paul's prayer and it being a call to, to a Christian being mature. And so... Sometimes the things that we think are big deals and the things we complain about and some of that show and manifest our lack of maturity because in the whole scope of things, that's not anything worth complaining about. Just throwing that out there. 
This prayer is a serious call to the man and woman of God to be mature in him. Romans 3:14. This is Paul. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And what is he praying for? First thing he's praying for is that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And brother and sister, I don't know what you think about when you hear the phrase riches of his glory. But I want you to get a picture again of God being like this this artesian well that's just bubbling forth and springing forth. And there's no end and there's no depth and it just goes on and on and on. That's that's a picture of the riches of his glory. I don't even know where to go with this. There's so many scriptures that we could we could bring into play here. The riches of his glory is like this. One of the things of his glory is, is it pleased God for his son to die on a cross for you and I. That's part of the riches of his glory. That's why Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's part of this riches of his glory. Why is that rich to God that his son would die on a, on a cross for you and I? Why is that something rich? We look at that and there's a lot of facets we could look at. We look at that and we're like, that's morbid. Why did that have to happen? I think one of the reasons, and, and the crucifixion to me is a multifaceted thing. There's a lot there. There's some things I'll never understand. But one of them is, is it shows that there is no length that God was not willing to go to for you and I to be reconciled to Him and be empowered by His Spirit. The cross shows that God is, is, is so rich and abundant in mercy and grace and love. He would give his very best for you. And that's exactly what he did. That realization, that understanding, that view of the cross should empower us to live overcoming lives. Because you have a God in heaven that will do anything, literally would give his own son so that you and I would have access by faith to Him. Dads, think about that for a little moment. Think about that. I have one son. A lot of us in here have one or more. Would you be willing to sacrifice Him if it meant the salvation of one person? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to do it for two people? I will give, I will sacrifice my son if it saves two people. If it means two people have access to God. Would you do it for ten? A hundred? Pretty sober stuff, isn't it? Actually, picture you taking your son and nailing him to a cross. Would you do it? God did it. He didn't do it just for one. He didn't do it just for two. He didn't do it just for ten. He did it for, I believe, millions. That is part of the riches of His glory. It brings God glory. It pleases God. It's part of who He is to give His uttermost. To go to any length. That men and women would be empowered by His Spirit and that He could spend eternity with them. 
You get a small picture of that of Jesus in the garden when He says, could you not watch with me one hour? Why in the world when our Savior was at His most trying hour, did He want to just be... He wanted His disciples to be close. That's still God's heart. He wants you to be close. Draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. I think our brother Tim nailed it. He won't, he won't do anything against our will. That wouldn't be love. He wants, he wants our heart and he wants all of it. This is a call to maturity that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. When we think about the gifts and calling of God, when we realize our undoneness, when we realize how far from the holiness of God we are, and brother and sister, we can flirt with the idea that we can come up with some sort of checklist to do that God will be impressed with. And that He'll he'll approve of. And that He'll be like, we, we think, wow, I'm doing really good today. I bet God's per, you know super happy with me today. You ever flirt with those thoughts? I did, wow, I treated my wife really, I opened the car door for her, I, I, I did all these things, and, and I said the right words to those people, and I even mentioned that one thing to that man on the job site about he needs a savior, and, and did all these things. Do you do those thinking that God's impressed with that? I think that's part of us when we do that with a genuine heart, when we, when there is an outworking of that gift of grace, it does bring God glory. But we don't do it for His grace. We do it because of His grace. We do it. We do the good works of God because of His grace. He loved us first. He He died for us first. We're getting ahead of ourselves again. To be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. And that speaks to our opening again. To be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. That speaks of... well. I want, when it says might in Scripture or power, the, word is, the Greek word is dunamis. And I'm not a Greek word person. I usually don't care much. But I like this one because I like power. And I like things like dynamos. It speaks of power. I like things like dynamite. That's why we name those these things with great power. We use that word dyna or that, that, that prefix dyna. It's from dunamis. It's from the Greek meaning power. And so you think about dynamite, you know, my dad used to have these red flares uh, out in the shop and they were flares. I had no idea why dad had flares. It was probably at a garage sale somewhere, guaranteed, 25 cents. Had to be cheap for him to have it, I'm guessing. And... For like the first 10 years of my life, I thought that was sticks of dynamite on the shelf in the shop. And it was a long time later that, that I found out those were flares. But whenever I picture dynamite or think of dynamite, I picture those red wax paper covered flares in the shop at 4881 South Rudy Road. And I can tell you that that's about the size of a, an old fashioned stick of dynamite. And there is an incredible amount of power in, in a stick of dynamite. The industrial revolution was not so much started by the steam engine and, and all of those things. It was started primarily because Alfred Noble invented dynamite and it allowed the mass mining of metal, which fueled all of that. Dynamite, power in small packages. 
that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened by might, by His Spirit in the inner man. And that, that was the heart of the opening is that you and I would understand how great of power is in us. Jesus said, you love me, keep my commandments. My Father and I, will. He'll give you a Spirit, His Spirit, and this Spirit will empower you to have overcoming power. And that's why Brother Tim can say, I'm not scared of any ghost that may or may not be in that building because I have the Holy Spirit of God, dynamite, dunamis, something greatly powerful in this weak, unearthed, you know, this, this earthen vessel. And we, we read that verse. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That's what he's talking about, that he would grant us to be strengthened by his might, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, the, when Paul is praying for you and I that we would be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man, what is that speaking about? What do you think the inner man is? What do you think the inner man is? Let's talk about that a little bit. When it says that he is praying that God's Spirit would strengthen our inner man. And then he writes over in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that his prayer there is that God would sanctify our whole spirit, soul, and body. I want to throw out some concepts for you that I want you to think about. I want you to consider that our inner man is our spirit. I want you to think about man when, when he writes there in Thessalonians. He basically says men are three parts, their body, their soul, and their spirit. And I won't pretend to understand the depths of all this, and I could be totally off base. But it makes sense to me like this, that our spirit, so God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. I think the breath of God, the the spirit of God, and our spirit, I, I don't think that's the soul. Man became a living soul. God breathed His Spirit into us. So the Spirit, I think, is this inner man. And I want to put it to you so we can try to wrap our minds around these concepts that our inner man, our spirit, is that which connects us to God. It is the part, the immaterial part of man. And I don't want to get like super deep here. I'm just trying to, trying to keep it so we can chew on this a little bit. The inner man is our spirit. It's that which connects us to God. And it, the scripture says it's the life of the soul and the body. Our spirit is that which connects us to God. So Ephesians 2, 1 says this, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You hath he quickened or made alive. And I realize that hath he quickened was added by the translators in that particular verse. But you can read a few verses later how it talks about being quickened with his, with the Spirit of Christ or something along those lines. And so it's okay to add those words. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. What was made alive? What was made alive in us? We're all people. We've all been born. We're all walking around breathing in what we call life. So how could he say you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, there's a part of us that is dead even though our body is alive. 
John 3, 5 through 6, Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, this is speaking to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think there's a part of us that that God, when when we believe or we come by faith to Him, His Spirit bears record with our spirit that we are the sons of God and we are made spiritually alive. I hope some part of that made sense. Now, the real, what really cooks the, cooks the brain is, is what part of us is involved in that? If we're dead in trespasses and sins and it says God quickens us, who moves first? So he prays that our, our whole soul, spirit, and body would be sanctified holy. That brings us to the soul. So the believer is quickened, made alive, made spiritually alive by the Spirit of God. I would premise or put forth before you that our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. Our mind, will, and emotions. And I want you to tell me where you think the conscience is in all of that. But I think it's fairly safe to say that our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. So in Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. It speaks there to our mind. We were at some time dead in trespasses and sins. We were enemies in our mind and alienated. Then we have our body. What are we going to do with that? Our physical body. Because all of us here are, this is kind of like depressing, all of us here are dying. This is a whole room of dying people if we just look at the physical body. Paul writes about that and he, 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 he realizes there's parts of him and I, I'm not sure I suppose Paul understood this as well as anybody, but there in Romans 7, when he talks about that there's basically two natures and they're wrestling, the spirit and the flesh, and what that looks like. And he says, that that I would do, I do not. And he talks about the law and I can't find the power to, to overcome. And the law just shows my sin. And, and he just ends up, it's like he throws his hands in the air and says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Our physical bodies are dying. Philippians 3.20 says this, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. So that's just some thoughts on this um, this spirit of God working in us. 
and, and, and how it, it empowers and enables and allows us to overcome. So even our spirit, our soul and our body are made alive, quickened. We're no longer alienated enemies of God in our soul. And I think that's what it does. I think part of the key of you and I having this, this empowering spirit in us and part of our overcoming is to understand this, the power of this spirit, the dunamis of this spirit. And that he wants to to equip us in all of these areas of our being. And so I guess to flesh that out, I would just say when you and I realize that God is for us and his spirit bears record with our spirit that we're the sons of God. If you and I could just recognize and believe that, then that spirit working with our spirit allows us in our mind, will and emotions, our soul that sanctification of that, and it begins to work out. And our brother talked about young men, men going to places and, and trying to overcome, and it's, it seems like an uphill battle. And all those things, I think I can guarantee you that the reason that is, is because we are believing lies. We are believing lies. And so, the lack of sanctification in our life, the scripture would just say it's it's because of our unbelief in God. And there's no such thing as just we're always believing something. So in a sense, there is no such thing as unbelief. If you're unbelieving in something, uh, some promise of God, you're believing something else. And our adversary, the father of lies, will give us, he will tell us anything to get us steered away from the promise of God. And so that's, that's part of that is, is some of that when, I, when we, we are hindering our own sanctification because we're believing lies. And I want to get into one of the biggest lies here in a little bit. We, we've got to keep moving. I'm not getting to where I want to go. So that's strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. So that's, that's part of Paul's prayers that you and I would recognize the power of the Spirit in us. And, and how that spirit works with our spirit to overcome and to be empowered. Number three, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And I think the hearts is just our thoughts and our feelings. And he says here in Ephesians 3, his prayer that the spirit strengthening our inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. And I just look at it this way, that there's rooms in our hearts that you and I know are dark, and there's areas of our lives and our hearts and our thoughts and our emotions that we are ashamed of. And our adversary is perfectly willing to let you be ashamed of those places. But our Savior wants to come into our hearts and clean those things out, open those doors up, open those rooms up, let the light in and clean them out. And so often you and I will fall for the trap that we think we'll do it first by our own strength and merit and then we'll let the Savior look at those rooms. And that's not going to work. That's why you see men and women being like radically conservative. It's a smokescreen. It's a fleshly carnal attempt to have some sort of overcoming power in our life that we don't have the proper equipment for. That's God's business. That's the Holy Spirit of God working in us. And sometimes we fall for this idea that we can just like be so radically conservative and plain that we'll, we'll just like push ourselves into holiness and then we'll let Christ into those areas. It's not going to work. I can give you in a myriad of examples of men that I know that have fallen. I, I mean, 
ridiculously far and I just found out another one and I, it's on my heart and my mind where it's a man who just thought the plainer and more conservative I get, I, I can overcome these dark areas of my heart. It'll never work. It's not going to happen. That's why Paul prays that we were going to be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Why? That ye being rooted and grounded in love. This is foundational to us being empowered that we have to be rooted or stable and grounded in love. Anchored, settled, founded in love. What does that mean? And I, I just ask this question. Can you accept that God loves you? Can you just accept that God loves you? I suspect it's fairly easy for this side of the meeting house. I suspect it's a little harder for this side of the meeting house. And that's maybe me projecting my own personality onto you men. Can you just accept that God loves you even though there are areas of your heart that are dark? Can you accept that? Or are you going to fall for the trap that we've got to, on our own effort, get these hearts so clean and pure and holy, then God will love us? It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You can't possibly, on your own effort and merit, get your heart good enough to be holy before God. That's His purpose. That's why that son was nailed to a cross and his blood was shed that by faith in that, you and I would be empowered by His Spirit and have overcoming power. That's how God works. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. That just means when we talk about keeping our hearts, that's what we mean. Know that God loves you all the time. And we're not preaching cheap grace. We're not preaching license to sin. And here's why. When you and I, I, this is, I found this in my own life, that overcoming power comes through accepting that God loves me even though I'm this wretched, wretched person. Because then I stop relying on my own self and my own effort and I start yielding to Him and it's, I realize I'm ill-equipped to do that. That's why Paul prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Can you accept that God loves you? We sing sometimes, may love that shining grace or all my thoughts preside or something, direct my thoughts, suggest my words and every action guide. That's the same thought. That we being rooted and grounded in love, number five, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. When the Scripture uses the word know, there is an implied relationship. When the Scripture uses the word know, there is an implied relationship. Paul's prayer for us through the Spirit, us being rooted and grounded in love, then will we be able to comprehend with all saints this four-dimensional love of God. I don't know what you think that fourth dimension is. Time fits fairly well. Length, breadth, depth, height. We think in three dimensions. We, we understand reality in three dimensions. And I want to just throw out that I think probably the fourth dimension is time that in the ages to come might show the exceeding riches. That's true empowerment 
by his spirit that us being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That tells me that you and I won't ever, this side of heaven at least, fully understand why God loves us so much. I don't understand it. I look at my life. I look at what I've done. I look at what I've said. I have regrets. I could sit up here and and have a pity party for hours about stuff that I regret from the last 40 years. And most of us in here can. I think all of us could. We press forward. We press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling. We don't look back at those things. And that's why Paul prays that we may be able to comprehend with all saints. That word comprehend just means to seize or possess. It just means to seize or possess. And I want you to get a picture of us realizing the manifold grace of God and his riches and, and being rooted and grounded in love. We just we just grab hold of that love of Christ. Grab a hold of it. Think of little kids that some of them are not so little and they still do this. They grab a hold of my legs and, you know, they just wrap you up. And then if you get enough of them on there, you end up falling down. That's kind of a, an illustration of what that word comprehend means. Just to grab a hold of and not let go no matter what. Seize, possess. The same thoughts in Philippians 3 um, when it talks about that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. The same word. It's the same thought. God has reached out and wants to grab a hold of us if we'll allow Him. And we, in turn, when we realize it's out of His love that He's doing that, we grab a hold of Him. That I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Now, to cook the brain a little bit, that verse says He apprehended us first. He apprehended us first. I think, brother and sister, true empowered living comes from... from and I want, I've done a, a butcher job of this. I didn't get half of where I wanted to get. And that's okay. I'd like you as homework to go home and read through these verses and realize that true empowered living comes from reading these promises of Scripture and grabbing a hold of them and never letting go. Realize that God loves you and in that is true overcoming power. I think when we can recognize and get some picture and some some heart understanding when our spirit bears witness with His Spirit that we are children of God and, and our soul becomes sanctified, our mind, will, and our emotions begin to understand and comprehend the deep truths and promises of God's Word. I want to say this very carefully, but I think at that point we are moving beyond religion into relationship. That needs qualified. I understand that. But we move into relationship, which is a far healthier uh, relationship with God. I'm not sure how to get away from that. Romans 11 says words of like this, O depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How wonderful are His judgments and His ways past finding out. You and I can rest that God loves us and we'll never understand totally why, at least this side of heaven.
And that's okay. That's the kind of God we serve. If we totally understood him, he wouldn't be God anymore, would he? Paul ends this prayer that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to go back to that well. I want to go back to you and I as an earthen vessel. And I want you to picture yourself as this clay pot that's got cracks, that's got holes in it, that's not real attractive. That's what an earthen vessel is. It's not real attractive. And when when Paul prays for us here that we might be filled with the fullness of God, I want you to picture a God that loves you so much that He pours into you like a well. And even with your cracks and the holes and all of that, it still gushes out the top. That's the kind of God we serve. That is a God of goodness. That is comprehending this this God we, we know and love. He's that kind of God. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I would be remiss if I, if I didn't quote one of my favorite poems right now. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase to added affliction. He addeth His mercy to multiplied trials. His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundaries known unto man. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen.